This is Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show, and Ella's Leash Production. Heard as a podcast around the world, but heard first on radio stations 100.7 WHUD-FM and Real Country 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Shine On, bringing you healers and dreamers and people who want to make life richer. It's your time to shine on. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for shining on today. Patricia Walsh Chadwick, a successful Wall Street businesswoman, had a secret that only three people in her adult life knew about. She was raised by a Catholic cult in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 50s. For the first time, she is finally telling this story and celebrating her family for living through it. Her memoir is called Little Sister. That's coming up. But first, what would it be like if you truly treated your body like a friend? not an object? What would it be like if you listened to your body's needs and touched it with care? I'm willing to bet you treat your pet's body better than you treat your own body. Meet Erica Mather. She is a yoga educator and therapist familiar to students at Omega and Kripalu. And she has a book coming out on the life-changing practice of becoming embodied. Glad you're here, Erica. We like to get to know you and all you do. Yeah, I have been teaching at Capello since 2011, I think, and at Omega probably for the past five years. Love those uh, locations, love the people who run it, love the people who show up for the program. It's a really great place. Do you have any coming up? Yeah, I have something coming up in June. Kripalu, it'll be June 21st through 23rd. I'm running a program called A Forest Gathering. I teach forest yoga, and it's with two of my friends from Forest Yoga. And we run a weekend around self-care traditions of the past, present, and future. And so it's a juicy weekend of sort of like an intro to forest yoga and yoga nidra. My friend Allison is a very skilled yoga nidra teacher. And then Stacy is a shamanic Reiki practitioner. So we bring in some of the shamanic elements that are present in forest yoga and kind of pull them to the surface with the shamanic Reiki. Okay, so Erica, what is forest yoga? Forest yoga is a practice of yoga created by my teacher, Anna Forest. Oh, okay. We don't have to do it in the forest. We do not have to do it in the forest. We don't. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I just took three ticks off me this weekend, so really. Oh, gosh. You know. We'll uh, do it indoors at Kripalu. Okay. Uh, I'm a lineage holder in the tradition, and forest yoga is my first yoga practice, and it's really where I learned about embodiment. Right. And sort of everything that I learned at yoga and then specifically through the lens of forest yoga has led me to all of my activities in New York City and my book and all that. Right. What do we need to know about embodiment? Well, the reason why I think improving your relationship with your body is like super important and embodiment, I should just say, is like living in your body. And you might say like, well, where else would I live? But people create very skilled techniques for living elsewhere. So the relationship with our body is, first of all, it's the most fundamental relationship of our lives, right? It's in fact, the only real promise we have of experiencing unconditional love in our lifetime. Additionally, without a a relationship with the body, we can't even begin to honestly address issues like our health, including basic daily care and how to eat. Um, Self-love, right, because yourself is housed in your body, so you can't just sort of like bypass the body and 
cruise along to all the other things. Right. <laughs> and then without this relationship with the body, we can't access our inheritance, our like our birthright, which is power is like intuition and insight and uh, women's wisdom even you know what is the power that comes from having a feminine body and then in addition to our health other areas affected include our personal relationships our work relationships and broadly speaking you know going swinging real wide in general our sense of value worth our purpose in life and and these things are a sense of how we value ourselves what are we here to do all of these things show up in every area of our being every relationship every interaction. I believe that that all stems from how we relate to our bodies. What does it look like when someone's not living in their body? What it looks like is that they are disconnected around some very fundamental issues like taking care of their body in a real way. They're disconnected from the needs of the body. Oftentimes they're cruel to their own bodies. Mm. Uh, They're disparaging. A lot of times people have very intellectual lives, so they'll they'll be disconnected not only from the the feelings of the body, but the emotions that the body experiences because all of your emotions run through your body. A lot of times what people who are disconnected from their body do is they think a lot about the body. So the body becomes an object. We objectify our bodies and we think about our bodies as well. Even things that seem like you're really involved with the body Right. I think are actually signs of disembodiment, like like excessive over-exercising, excessive dieting, being a workaholic, yeah. being a shopaholic, all manner of things that, that seem like you're involved with the body actually are not honest involvements with the body. It's right. disembodiment. I brought it up because as you were talking, I pictured a woman I met and she was a runner. And I thought, man, mm. she runs, but she's not in her body when she's running. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, I was an I was an obsessive over-exerciser, and it was a way of objectifying the body. And when you objectify the body, you remove its life, you remove its personhood, and actually, you actually sort of remove your own personhood. And so then the body becomes just a thing, an object, and and that's the opposite of being embodied. Yeah. Being embodied means you're, you're in it, and you treat it as if it is an entity instead of an object. And I would think that when you come to really live in your body as is, learn to love your body as is, then you can make some meaningful changes with your body, should you want to. Yeah, I agree. What do you mean by meaningful changes? Like, what is, like how does that mean to you? What, what I think I'm saying, if you love your body first as is... Then if you wanted to change it, like lose weight or get stronger or something, Ah. you might be able to do that in a more authentic way if you first were in your body. I agree wholeheartedly. And this is something that's very tricky, right? Because on the outside, it looks the same. The issue of weight loss is a real battleground right now for people who are body positivity activists. Because losing weight can be a way of being involved in diet culture. And diet culture is part of a real way of oppressing women and disenfranchising them from their own bodies. So the project of weight loss, for instance, could be a way that you're actually objectifying yourself, or it could also be a way that you are taking care of yourself. And it's very hard to discern from the outside, like, which it is. You know, like, I have a student right now who is a yoga practitioner, and she got injured in her yoga practice. 
and now she's one of my students, and she's really, really working hard to lose weight because she has elevated blood pressure and you know, all, kind of all those things that go along with it. And I want to support her in that project of taking care of herself and her health. And, you know, losing weight can also be a lifelong obsession for people, for women, and more, more and more for men. It can be a lifelong obsession that actually is a way of divorcing themselves from the, their true health and their bodies. Yeah. It's a very tricky issue. Nobody knows actually what's good for your body except you because you're the only person living in it. Yeah. <laughs> and so in order to actually make empowered choices about your health, you have to generate a relationship with the body. We are talking to Erica Mather, and I've never heard the word diet culture. But when oh. No, I've never heard those words together. But when you say the words, I can see the whole thing panoramically. Yeah. What diet culture is, is the idea that dieting is compulsory for women. And if you're not dieting, that you are not, you know, performing uh, uh, acceptable femininity. Wow. Yes. And when I think about all those diet related things in commercials and stuff, you're right. It's disempowering. It's disempowering to, to all people, really. It is. Naomi Wolf wrote a wonderful book called The Beauty Myth and in it, she, and this is a very rough paraphrase, but in it she points out that, that, a, that a population that is starving is a controllable population. And so when women are constantly underfed, which is part of what happens when you diet, women are actually easier to control because it's very hard to think when you're starving. The diet culture. Unbelievable. Mm. All right, good stuff, good food today for our souls and spirits. Here's the thing. Our bodies aren't the problem. What we think about our bodies is the problem. And so the book and much of what I teach people about in my programs is about changing the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think about the world. So we're taught to believe that our bodies are bad, that our bodies are unruly, that our bodies are chaotic and disorganized and um, wrong. I mean, if you really think about it quite fundamentally, women are taught from the get-go that, that we're, we're the second-class citizens. We, we were born into the wrong body. So part of the notion of the, of the program that's outlined in the book is to change your mind about all the things that you've been taught about your body and the promise of if you control your body or if your body is acceptable, if your body is thin or if your body is beautiful, all the outcomes that we think we will obtain when we've um, achieved those outcomes or when we've achieved like the perfect physical form and showing you that actually we've been sold a bill of goods that is disingenuous. So if you change your mind, that then the way that you relate to your body will be different and you will become more embodied. And that will actually lead you to a different way of viewing the world and viewing yourself and viewing your values and viewing your relationships and viewing your purpose. And isn't that the magic of making this one change, you see the whole world differently. Yes, it is the magic. It and I is. And I actually, I love that word. Really, the promise that I make in the book is, is in many ways is shifting from thinking of your body as an object to thinking of your body as, as magical. Yeah, well, that's the name and, of the book then. You call the publisher and you say, the name of the book is Your Body is Magical. I will tell them that today, and I'm writing it down right now. Okay, Magical Body. That's the name of the book, Magical Body. I was going to say Your Body is a Wonderland, but John May already got that one. Yeah. (laughs) 
and he's he's yeah. another topic for another day. Uh, Erica, I love the work you're doing. Tell us Thank one you. thing we could do right now today to get us on the right path. I came prepared with five tips. I have a way of thinking about this that I call the door your body five core competencies. My five adoring core competencies. Each of these competencies is a way of evaluating your relationship with your body. Number one is injury, illness, and aging. Having a body means you're going to get sick, hurt, and you're going to get older. <laughs> All of this is, is inevitable. The tip is when you're injured or sick or when you notice that your body is changing in the way that it will when it's aged, can you do the most to take care of yourself instead of the least? Mm-hmm. And usually what we do is we do the, we do the minimum possible requirement. We get the smallest amount of sleep. We take the fewest days off of work. We eat the littlest. It's like, could you do the most could instead of the least? do the most. I love that. Okay. Adoring core competency number two is around weight. And having a body means that your weight is going to fluctuate. Your body isn't like a statue. It's going to fluctuate. This is just the reality. It's going to go up and go down. When you when you gain some weight, usually that's bothersome. And then you decide what to do about it, you know? So instead of like having an action plan, just stop. When you gain weight, wait. That's really it. When you gain weight, wait. Mm-hmm. And instead get curious about what your body is doing. Learn about its biology, its anatomy, and how it functions. Got it. Adoring core competency number three is around thoughts and speech. The very origin of everything is what we think. What you think begets your speech. Speech begets behavior. Behavior begets outcomes. Outcomes is sort of like that's the material of your life. A lot of times we think badly about ourselves. We think badly about other people. We're judgy. We're comparing. That's human nature. I'm not judging. But the tip is to become an admirer of other people. Mm. So instead of like always kind of like being like, well, that's a really ugly shirt, you know, (laughs) the tip is like to look for the beauty. Be in admiration of other people and be in admiration of yourself. So make a conscious effort to shift into a place of admiration. I like that. And you know, I I think looking for beauty is is one of the great elixirs of life. Mm-hmm. I really do. So what's number four? The number four is around food. When we develop an honest relationship with our body, then we can do this thing called intuitive eating. That's, I think, a long, a long road for all of us. But the first thing is in order to honestly assess what we need, we have to like stop with the addictions. And the number one addiction of all humans, modern humans, is sugar. The tip around food is really like reduce your sugar intake because once you've stopped eating quite as much sugar, you'll be able to come out of the sugar haze and sort of assess better. Like what did your body actually need from a nutritional standpoint? Because your body can't really feel what it needs when it's all doped up on sugar. Exactly. Number five, and touch. So here's the thing. Your body doesn't speak English. It's native language or movement and touch. So if you want to generate a relationship with your body, you need, it needs to be in its own language. One of the things that I've noticed after so many years of watching people and teaching yoga is that people touch themselves very cruelly. And if you pay attention, you might, you might be surprised to discover that you poke yourself, you prod, you pinch, you twist, you scratch. Sometimes people, I see them hit themselves, right? Mm. And so my, my t- tip really here is to pay attention to that and touch yourself kindly. Touch your own body with kindness. And in that process, you'll begin to build a relationship with your own body by touching in ways that it responds to favorably. Like, yeah. Be respectful. Be gentle. 
be kind. There's no way that you're going to like generate a relationship with your own body that's based on compassion and kindness when you touch it cruelly. I love, love, love this nutrition that you're giving us. You know what I do? Thank you. I do yeah. it um, instinctively now all the time is I massage my own hands. Mm-hmm. Right? Because when there's all sorts of uh, nerve receptors in there and, and what is that? It's not reflexology. It's whatever the handology is. I think it is reflexology. Is it reflexology? Okay. Usually they do your feet. Right. But, um, but there yeah. is reflexology in your hands, and I, so I feel like I'm giving my whole body a massage just by rubbing my hands. I love it. That's a great, that, yeah, you can start there. But I should also go get on a massage table, too. Erica Mather, you are just a delight, and you're filled with wonderful things for us to enjoy. And we don't know what your book is called, but we're going to find it one way or another. Uh, actually, the new pub date is April 2020, so we got a little bit oh, of time. Oh, we, we have a year. We have a we year. We have a year, yeah. But if, but if you want to, like, you know, be oh. in touch sooner, you can go to my website, which is ericamather.com. Okay. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram is where I spend the most amount of time. It's Erica underscore Mather. It's all Erica Mather everywhere. everywhere. Website, Twitter. Okay. We will Facebook, find you Instagram. and we'll talk many more times before the book comes out. I would very much love that. Casey, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Erica Mather and the Adore Your Body transformational program. Look for her at Kripalu and Omega. Hi, it's Casey. I thank you for shining on today. And a big hello to everyone who came out to the Shine On talk we had at Bethel Springvale last week in Croton. That was a good time. Now, our next spiritual weekend on self-mastery is happening in May in Poughkeepsie. Casey.co has more. And then we're planning inspirational weekends for July and August in Osning and Garrison. Come, I'd love to meet you. Now I'd like you to meet Patricia Walsh Chadwick or Anastasia as she was called when she lived at St. Benedict's, a religious cult in Massachusetts in the 50s. Raised collectively with 38 other children in a dorm, strict rules, beatings. Patricia grew up without the attention of her parents, whom she had to call aunt and uncle. But she didn't fit in. She got kicked out of the cult as a teen and now runs a healthcare company in Connecticut. Little Sister is the name of the memoir. Why now, Patricia? You know, it's interesting. It took me 10 years to write it. And about 15 years ago, I started writing it, which I'll admit, still way after the time that it had happened. But I started to realize that, you know, 50 years from now, there will be nobody left alive who was part of this environment, this story, and this kind of social experiment. And it's not a mommy dearest story. It's really a story about a family that couldn't be broken. It's a love story in a way. But I also thought, my gosh, it's a story that hasn't been told and needs to be told. Why hasn't anyone shared this story before? There were a lot of people in this uh, cult, I guess you would say, right? There were a lot, and um, I think in many cases it's hard to tell the story. I, Until I started to write it, I had only told three people in my whole life. One was my husband, one was my closest friend, and one was the man I, I was engaged to before my husband. So it was it's not easy to tell, and I had an entire career on Wall Street without ever telling anyone. So I 
I'm not sure exactly why one doesn't find that easy to talk about, but it is such an unusual and different and difficult story to tell. And I also felt for a long time that people might hate my parents, and I never did. I've dedicated the book to them. So I didn't want to write something that I thought might put them in a light that was very hard for people to understand. That is such a beautiful thought. And, you know, you are an incredible success. How did you build yourself after living through the childhood you had? Well, I I do think in some ways there may be a little bit of DNA that just could never <laughs> say I'd be defeated. But there were a lot of ways in which one had to be sure not to be thwarted, even growing up there. And uh, I learned to take very, very small things and find great hope and happiness in them. And so even though when I went out, I was heartbroken, I didn't know if I would ever see my family again, I knew that I had no option but to survive. Failure was not an option for me. And so I just put all my energies into taking little baby steps at first and eventually bigger and bigger steps and creating a dream out of that. I had no idea what I would do. But success breeds success. And uh, eventually my family all came together and we were very happy together as a family. And I feel, frankly, extraordinarily fortunate. And I feel that the love that I always knew my parents had for me was enough to give me the strength to move forward. Beautiful. Why did you have to leave? I was not fitting into the mold of what Sister Catherine, and she was the woman that ultimately was truly running the place. I didn't fit into the mold that was her vision and her mission. That mission was that every one of us 39 children who had been told from the time we were infants that we had been selected by God, dedicated to him for our lives. And I was not able, I was not compliant in that. And it wasn't that I tried not to be. It was that just human nature, which is also one of God's gifts, took over in a very strong way. And when I was about 13 and 14, I started to develop crushes on men, which is one, as a parent, one is always kind of pleased when you see your children developing that way. But this uh, was, was very threatening to Sister Catherine. And when I was told I would leave, and I never was able to say goodbye to anyone. I was just secreted away. And when um, people were told, you came to ask her, why is she gone? She said she was destroying the vocations of the men. And remember, I was 16 or 17 years old. I was so naive. I never thought about holding anyone's hand or kissing. It was just what should happen. Right. And so I was I was banished, and um, that was that was one of the most difficult parts we're of ta- my life. We're talking to Patricia Walsh Chadwick. The book is Little Sister, a memoir, and it's almost so hard to believe that this religious cult uh, occurred in that in the not so distant past in uh, beautiful Boston, and you could have. Before they saw, I can, you know, you can just imagine the sterility of of a cult-like situation and this beautiful teenage girl rising up in the midst. You were a flower that had to go. But Sister Catherine tried to get you into Vassar, right? I applied to both Vassar and Bates, but not because she ever intended that I would go there. But instead, it was so that they could prove to the state of Massachusetts uh, that we should be accredited as a school. And that did work. And when I applied to both of those colleges, I knew I was on my way out, and I knew I was never going to be allowed to go there. But it was my home. These were people I truly loved. And I did my best. And fortunately, they were accredited from, from you know their standpoint. And it was... Uh, the education was good. It was good. And so um, I had to write a letter, though, saying I wasn't coming to either school. 
So when I left, you know, I really had no money, no parents, no mentors, and was pretty much left to my own. Sister Catherine never contacted me again. She basically tossed me back to my parents and said, okay, she didn't work out for me. You can have her back. And my parents then started to come into my life, and they eventually left a few years later. Sister Catherine herself died, and that's when the place started to really come apart. Come apart. In just the moment we have left, this is such a compelling story, and we want everyone to read the book. Did you ever feel your life was odd at that time? Oh, I knew my life was odd. I knew it was odd. When I left, I was so desperately unhappy. But I'll tell you, um, I, I knew I couldn't do anything but survive and ultimately thrive. And so I think very importantly, I want to leave the message that this is not a mommy dearest story. This is truly a story of a family that couldn't be broken and a family that came back together again. And take it all the way to the end. I think you'll have a smile on your face. Patricia Walsh Chadwick, Little Sister, is her memoir of growing up in a religious cult in the 50s. It was called St. Benedict's in Cambridge, Mass. Pick up a copy of the book if you see it, or if you'd like to win a copy, email me from the website casey.co. Our thought for the day is from Washington Irving, who said, There is in every true woman's heart a spark of heavenly fire which lies dormant in the broad daylight of prosperity, but which kindles up and beams and blazes in the dark hour of adversity. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show for your entertainment only. Heard Sunday mornings on 100.7 WHUD and on Real Country's 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Subscribe to Shine On on iTunes and SoundCloud and catch a show anytime at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Shine On.